Also, children in kindergarten and first grade are welcome to primary church. You know, it's funny how the effect that uh, Revelation, this is the third, if you're visiting for the first time, the third one in the series, I think might take a year uh, or two. Um, But after the last service, someone who's been a member of this church for quite a long time um, came to me and said, you know, I've been a Presbyterian for my my whole life, and I I was tempted to shout hallelujah the last service. (laughs) No. Now, you'll be be glad to know, many of you, that she did not succumb to that temptation. But we're making progress. And so, why don't I pray, and we will jump right in to the book. So, Father, I just pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that as we consider this book, this passage this morning, that you would raise us above our pettiness, raise us above uh, our fears, raise us above that which would separate us from you and one another, and give us a grand vision of Jesus himself. I pray that you would be in my head, and in my thinking, in my heart, and in my understanding, and in my mouth, and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. And amen. Just a couple of business notes. If you're all, all of the audio for the sermons is on our website, as well as the slides. And the reason I'm telling you that is because even the, those complainers in my family say that I talk too fast. <laughs> that was a joke, too. But at, at any rate, I came home yesterday after spending several hours at church, and Judy said, how'd it go? And I said, I could do three sermons on what I have to do tomorrow morning. And she said, why don't, why don't you just do that? And I said, because I just spent the past five hours making it into one. And so, so the point is, is I'm going to have to keep going at a good clip. And if you want the slides, you can download them from the website. And also we're playing around with a, a screencast, which is actually will be a screencast of the service being on YouTube. There's two of them. The last two are there already. And so we figured out we can do it right through our sound system here. So with all of that said... We're looking at Revelation 1, 9 through 20. And this passage is a bit of an introduction as well before we jump into the churches. And I'm not going to review everything. I did two whole weeks of introduction. So you might want to, if you're new to this, you might want to revisit that. There's just a couple things I'll point out to you. Is just one, you know, consider this picture. If you're, if you're listening on audio, it's a picture of a dragon eating a city. Now with no context... What does that mean? You know, or if, you, if you, you found this picture a thousand years from now, and you found this picture of a dragon eating a city, and you took it literally, and you look back at time, what would it mean? Well, does it help you understand what this picture means if I tell you that it was published on July 1st of 1997? That's the day that communist China took over Hong Kong. Knowing that information, does the picture make a bit of difference? Well, it does, I mean, but, it, but it not just makes a big difference. It tells you all of these things, and it tells you what, the, what the, the people thought of the communist Chinese and how they thought it was going to affect their city and all of these things. And the point is, is that when you use pictures, you can actually say a lot more sometimes. If John had to write out the book of Revelation in doctrinal proposition, it, my guess is it would be as big as the whole Bible is now. But he uses pictures, and since he uses pictures, he's able to say a lot more. So keep that in mind. The other thing I just wanted to remind you of is the interpretive lens we're using, or the approach that we're using. 
Remember last week I said there's generally four approaches that people use. There's a historicist, uh, there's a futurist, there's a preterist, there's an idealist. One of them looks at the book of Revelation and says everything is in the past. One says that everything is in the future and the other two are somewhere in between. And I told you that we wouldn't be using any of those. I mean, there, there is some truth to those, to all of them, the, the approaches we looked at. But that's not the lens that will drive us. And the lens that will drive us is going to simply be this gospel, what I'm calling a gospel-centered approach. And it's the same approach, at least, that I use when I preach from any book of the Bible. In other words, whether you're looking at Genesis or Exodus or First or Samuel, the question is, what does this book say about the person and work of Jesus? How is it pointing us there? If Jesus is the, the culmination of everything that the Bible is about, how is this book teaching us that? How is it building upon that? Same with the book of Revelation. How is the book of Revelation helping us to understand more effectively the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf and as it applies to the, the world around us? Okay? So with all of that said, we have three points today. The first point we're going to look at is John's commission. He's actually commissioned to, to write something. Okay? The second thing we'll look at is John's vision. John has a vision this morning, uh, at least in the passage. And the last thing we'll look at is John's confidence. In other words, John is given this vision and he doesn't respond to it very well. And what ultimately gives him confidence to go ahead and finish the book? What, what gives him confidence to keep writing? So those three things, John's commission, John's vision, and John's confidence. Okay, let's look first at John's commission Let me read this to you. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So what's going on here? The first thing notice is he says, I, John, your brother and partner. Now remember, this is an apocalypse. It's a prophecy, but it's also a letter. And generally speaking, when an apostle writes a letter, they're not that touchy-feely. In other words, when Paul writes a letter, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I mean, he's letting them know right up front that I'm writing you a letter that bears the authority of God because I am an apostle. John, on the other hand, doesn't do that here. He writes them. It says, John, your brother and partner. Now, why is he doing that? Well, one simple reason may be, remember, John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He may, at the end of the day, he just may have been a little bit more touchy-feely than Paul. I'm guessing that's the case. On the other hand, he, he's really making an attempt to identify with the, the people to whom he's writing. In other words, he's not writing them as an apostle who's coming down with new information from on top of the mountain. He's writing them as, as someone who shares in their suffering who is going to tell them what Jesus has revealed to him for them. So he says he's their brother and their partner. And he mentions after that in three things in which he's their brother and partner. He says the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, and don't miss the part that it says that are in Jesus. In the Greek, there's only one article there. In, In other words, the three things, tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance, are meant to be taken together. Because they all, they're all dependent upon one another. In other words, if there's persecution going on, the only reason there's persecution and tribulation for Christians is because they're Christians, at least in the Roman Empire. And John says, I'm a, I'm a party to that. 
But also I'm a party to the patient endurance, and I'm a party to this thing called the kingdom. Because what John is going to try and help us make sense of in the book of Revelation is on one hand, you know, Paul says we're co-heirs with Christ. We're seated with Christ in the heavenlies on one hand. On the other hand, the emperor is like killing people. So how, how do we make sense of that? What does it mean to reign with Christ on one hand, and on the other hand, to, to live in a pretty gritty environment, a pretty hard place? And John sort of tells us right there. He says, I'm your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance which are in Jesus. Just as a side note, a lot of, a lot of different traditions make a big deal about tribulation. Is there going to be a great coming tribulation? At least according to this passage, and it's the same word that's used in the rest of the New Testament. John's opinion is that the, the tribulation is right now. That the end times, the hardness is happening right now. Now, will there be some other greater tribulation? I don't know, to be honest with you. But from John's perspective right here is that things are hard right now. That the end times, which started at the coming of Jesus the first time, are going on right now. And he is their partner in it. So what else is going on? He says, I was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We know from the secular historian Eusebius that John was on the island of Patmos. And he was there because of what he says. We're preaching the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And we also know that Domitian, starting in 92 AD, uh, up the ante as far as persecuting Christians. And the question is, why didn't he kill John? All the rest of the disciples were, were martyred, according to tradition. Why was, wasn't John killed? And the answer, I think, is in the word martyred. In other words, we can only speculate why he was exiled and not just flat out killed. And the, the best speculation is that they didn't want to make a martyr out of him. They didn't want to give him more fame. So what's the best thing to do? Instead of making him into a martyr, they just put him on this island called Patmos. And the, the Isle of Patmos was just, it was exile. It wasn't prison. So oftentimes you see pictures of John in prison or writing or the Apostle Paul was. John was on, he was just on an, an island, a, a sort of rocky island where he was free to come and go, but it was only 10 miles from one end to the other. So he was there. And so he's on the Isle of Patmos. He was exiled because of his preaching, apparently because of the, his testimony of Jesus. He wouldn't stop. The one thing I want to make sure you don't miss on this is that phrase, in Jesus. That we tend to think of tribulation and trials and endurance as being outside of Jesus. That Jesus needs to help me with them. And what you're going to see over and over in the book of Revelation, what you're going to see over and over this morning is that Jesus is sovereign or Jesus is in control of all these things. So if there is tribulation, it is not outside of Jesus' control. If there is trial, if there is patient endurance to be had, it is in the context of his lordship and reign over us as king. So what do we have next? Verses 10 through 11, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Again, I, I think every slide that I'm giving you, I could do a whole probably 45 minutes on. You're going to get 45 seconds right now. What I want you to just notice on this one is, he says, write what you see. If you read through the book of Revelation without being careful, you can, it's easy to miss things. Cause it, I don't know if you've ever seen those uh, where they'll put up words backwards and you look at them and you can read them because your brain switches them. 
When you read the book of Revelation, you've got to actually go closely because we tend to think, write what you hear. I'm going to dictate a letter to you, write what you hear. He doesn't say that. You've got to pay attention. He says, write what you see. Because what's important in the book of Revelation are all these images that are going to come up. And he says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And again, we're, I'm going to do a, at least one sermon on every one of the seven churches. But what I wanted to point out to you here is just this, is the number seven. Remember what the number seven represents in the Bible. Generally speaking, it represents completeness. It represents the fullness of something. So if Jesus has seven eyes, that means he sees everything. If he has seven horns, that means he's all-powerful. And so by addressing the seven churches, most people think, I think, what he's getting at is he's addressing all churches, that these seven churches represent every church through, through, for, for all time. Because what he could have done, he could have, he could have written to the eight churches that are in Asia Minor, or nine, or ten. He could have pushed it a little bit and said to the seven churches and Galatia, to the seven churches and Philippi, for, to, to all these other places. He didn't. For some reason, he picked seven churches. And that's going to become important later on when we find out what's going on with these churches. So as we continue on, the next thing, it moves right into John's vision. So you have this setup where he says, I heard this voice like a trumpet behind me saying right and by the way the, this voice like a trumpet in the new testament at least the trumpet always sort of is a sign of the, the the end times it's the coming of the day of the lord when you hear the trumpet sound that's when you ought to be worried and so john hears the trumpet and he has to turn around which i want to make sure you get that as well he and he sees something and the question is what does he see and what makes John's vision different in the book of Revelation than, say, Peter's in the book of Acts or Paul's is they're sort of caught up in heaven or they're caught up in this grand thing. John, if you remember from, from the letters of 1 John and even from his gospel, John's really big on touching and, and the physical aspect. So in John's vision, he has to actually turn around to see. And later on, we're going to see that, that John is touched by someone. And so it isn't just this ecstatic thing in his head. Something is happening, being revealed to him. And what is it that he sees? Well, if you see with only your eyes, you see one thing. So John turns around, and if he only saw with his eyes, he would see something like this. That's a fresco from Italy, I believe. You know, he would see a man with a golden robe and, and, and a sash around him, and he would have seven stars in his hands, and he would have a big sword coming out of his mouth, and he would have woolly white hair. And it would be sort of odd if you think about it. If he only saw with his eyes. And yet, if you see with your heart, if you see with, with a heart that has eyes to see, you see something not, not completely different because he sees that picture, but the picture says something else. And what the picture is, is a realization of all the Old Testament promises. So in other words, instead of listing out all the Old Testament promises, remember we talked about last week that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Instead of listing those out, what John sees is a picture. And the picture tells him all he needs to know about the whole Bible, basically, but especially the Old Testament as it works its way forward to this person and work of Jesus. So what does he see? The first thing it says, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. So immediately, from this point on, we're in the Old Testament. 
That all of these images come directly from the Old Testament. So the thing is, he says, I turned and I saw the, uh, gold, seven golden lampstands. Well, the golden lampstand is found in Exodus 25 and Exodus 35, that should be 35, 17, where God tells Moses to, to make one singular golden lampstand to be in the temple. When it was in the tabernacle, ultimately it was in the temple. That's in chapter 25 of Exodus. In chapter 35, this guy Bezalel is commissioned to make it. And so he makes one golden lampstand. And this golden lampstand would be placed in, in the inner depths of the temple. And it was the only light in the temple. And the, the, the lampstand, by the way, bore light. It didn't produce the light, but it, it was a holder of the light. And it was the only light in the temple, and that light came to, to represent God's presence among Israel. Can you think of anyone else who said, I am the light of the world? Right? Jesus said that. But it also came to symbolize God's empowerment toward, for Israel to carry out their blessing to the world. If you look at Zechariah chapter 4, that, that basically what's happening here is the one lampstand that represented Israel and represented God's presence among Israel is now turned into seven lampstands. That it's no longer just one, but there is seven. And we're going to find out later exactly what those seven lampstands represent. But among other things, they represent uh, the, the fact that God dwells among the churches and God dwells not just with his people Israel but that somehow has been expanded that his presence is not just in the temple any longer but it's it's somewhere else and we'll look at that what else does he see he says in verse 13 he says in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest and if you remember what this phrase son of man sounds like in the ancient Near East the most presumptuous thing you could call yourself would be the son of man from any 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 particular religious tradition but especially from a jewish one and that comes from the book of daniel and daniel we read it this morning mike read it as a call to worship in chapter seven daniel says and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so think how this vision starts. That John turns around and he sees these golden lampstands and he looks up and notice what he does not say. He does not say, Jesus, my old buddy. Remember, I'm the one whom you loved, my, your pal. He doesn't say that. John is immediately struck by what he sees. And he says, I saw one like a son of man. And the one who is like a son of man is the one who is given dominion by God himself, by the ancient of days, was given dominion over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And they will come to him, and they will worship him, and he is sovereign over all of them. He's been given that by the ancient of days. And John says, the first thing I turned, I turned, and that's what I saw. And not only that, but he was clothed with a long robe. That's Daniel 7 I just read to you. With a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Right. I hate to say it, but what you wear is important. <laughs> when he looks around and he sees one like the Son of Man, on one hand that connotes this one has been given all power and authority. On another hand, the, the, one who, the only people who would wear robes would either be priests or kings. 
And we don't know which one, but what makes sense of the outfit is the golden sash. Because in the ancient areas, if you wore, if you wore a sash... Typically, to work, you would wear it around your waist. And remember, you know, they, I, I don't even know what the things that they, you know, it looks sort of like a dress, but men wear it, but it's not a kilt. You always see in the pictures. The, the, anyhow, when they would work in the fields, they would pull up their, their skirt and tuck it in to the waistband. And when you finished with work, when you were completely done, you could take that waistband off and you put it over your shoulder. You put it across your chest because you weren't working anymore. So what is this saying? He says, I saw one like the Son of Man. He was dressed like a priest or a king, and he had this golden, this golden sash. And it wasn't around his waist. It was around his chest. It was around his chest because apparently whatever his job was, whatever his task was, is completely and utterly finished. That the work of this Son of Man, the work of this priest king, is completely finished. Finished. And remember, we told you over and over again in the book of Revelation, what you're going to see is, a, is John pointing us to, or Jesus through John pointing us to, the fact that his work was completely and utterly finished on the cross. That on his cross and by virtue of his resurrection, he has completely conquered sin and death and it is done. Everything else is just the working out of the details. That's what John sees. Also, if you want to study more later, there's a lot of this particular part of the vision that comes from Daniel chapter 10. The next part, it's easy to read over this and think, oh, it's just, you know, it's about his hairdo. It says, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. So what is this telling us? You know, on one hand, people say, well, of course, it's, it, you know, people with white hair are older and therefore wiser, and so it's pointing us to the wisdom of this one called the Son of Man. Or it says his hair was white like snow, and it, so it's pointing us to the purity of the Son of Man. And there may be some truth to that. But if you're consistent with where all this stuff is coming from, much of it from Daniel, it's saying something a lot bigger than that even. Daniel chapter 7, 9 this is before the Son of Man is given stuff. It's just this picture of the Ancient of Days. And Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. So this one, he's like the Son of Man. He is dressed like a priest. His work is completed. Could, could, it get any, could the vision get any bigger? Could it get any more scary for John? Because one like the Son of Man, it's pretty, that's pretty big. I mean, the only other way that you could sort of outdo the Son of Man would maybe to be the Ancient of Days. And so what are we saying here? What is John seeing? I think he's seeing this. That Jesus is also the Ancient of Days. Or he's certainly equal to the Ancient of Days. In other words, Jesus is God. He's just not one who is sent by God because when you look through the Old Testament, you see some visions that are like this and it's messengers from God. But this one is no mere messenger. This is actually God himself. He's not just one like the Son of Man. He's also like the Ancient of Days who has all power and all authority. That's going to be huge because remember what this book is about in, in many ways is comforting people who are being afflicted and who, who need comfort. 
And the only way you can have comfort is if you know that there's someone who is absolutely in charge of everything and knows every hair on your head and every breath you take. So that's what John is getting at, I believe. Verses 15 and 16, I wish I had an hour right now. It says, His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and His voice like the roar of many waters. The reference to His feet could come from Daniel. Remember, the, the kingdoms of this world have feet that are made of iron and clay, and because their feet are iron and clay, they can't bear the weight of responsibility, they can't bear the weight of what's put upon them, so they, they fall to pieces, but not the Son of Man. The Son of Man's feet are, are burnished bronze, purified in the fire. You also see this kind of uh, imagery in the book of Ezekiel, and especially his voice like the roar of many waters. Notice it says in his right hand, this is a side note, he held seven stars. What does he mean there? Well, later on in, in this passage, we're going to see he says specifically, the stars are this. On the other hand, when you read anything that John writes, like the Gospel of John, it, it, oftentimes it, he seems to use things in two different ways, or he tends to use one image to make two or three different kind of points. And it's just interesting here at this point when he talks about the seven stars because we're moving toward uh, showing this one who is like the Son of Man, that is Jesus himself being sovereign, being in charge of all things. And in the ancient Near East, according to the Hebrews and according to the Romans and the Greeks, there were only seven planets in the solar system. And they called them stars. That was before Pluto was added, I guess, and then got ditched. So there is a sense here in which he holds the seven stars in his right hand. According to the, to, the, to the Greeks and according to the Romans, the stars were what ran the universe. Right? So for people who maybe these days actually follow horoscopes and things. This may, in fact, be saying that not only do the stars not run the universe, but Jesus is the one who rules the stars. That you look to the stars, you look to the creatures for, for advice, you look to the creatures for how to run your life, and Jesus himself, he actually holds the stars in his very hand. What else does he do? It says, out of from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That reference to the mouth and the two-edged sword probably comes from somewhere in the Psalms. There's a couple of different places, and where it says his face was shining like the sun in full strength, there's no greater blessing, in the Old Testament at least, or, or, or curse, I guess, than to have God's face shine upon you. Right? Number six, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Well, only if God intends to bless you is that a good thing. Because if you're not right with God and he shines upon you, then you disintegrate. Remember Isaiah said that. Woe is me, I am becoming undone. And John loads all these images in there. And all to tell us and point us to this whole idea of this one, like the Son of Man, like the Ancient of Days, Jesus himself, being the culmination of all these things in the Old Testament. And that leads us to John's response to that, his confidence. In, in other words, what is John's confidence? He sees one thing, and what he sees are all these images from the Old Testament combined in one person, that is Jesus. And what is his confidence going to be? Because he's, we're going to see in a minute, he gets, becomes very afraid. Well, what we see in this part of the passage is Jesus describes himself. 
If you want to know what Jesus is about, just listen to what he says about himself. In other words, we can, you could interpret what I just told you maybe any number of ways. I think the Old Testament is the best way to do it. But this part is hard to do anything but listen to Jesus. And so what happens here? 17.8, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Boom. Now that shouldn't surprise us if you're familiar with the Bible because in the Old Testament, basically what happens here with John is what scholars call sort of a fourfold prophetic pattern. But there's a pattern. It's the same way every single time a prophet gets new revelation of what is the pattern. It's basically this. Basically the, the prophet has a vision of something, some kind of heavenly vision goes on. He falls on his face in fear. He's strengthened by a heavenly being. And then finally, he receives further revelation. That happens in Daniel 10, by the way. It happens in a few other places in the Old Testament. In other, it makes sense. I mean, if, God, if, if someone wants to, God wants to reveal something through a prophet and he's just laying there as if dead, he's got to do something. So he helps him up and he helps him to, to continue and recommissions him. But what is important for us to get is just this, is verse 17 B and 18, is how does Jesus and Jesus' description of himself help John to deal with his fears? Let me show you what I mean. He says, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. In the Greek, that says, it literally says, stop being afraid. Stop it. And what's interesting is, remember this grand vision that we just had of Jesus, that, that, that John can't even bring himself to do anything but just describe. His hair was like wool, his feet were like bronze, all these things. That same person reaches down and touches John. He touches him. And he says to him, stop being afraid. And then he gives him the remedy to fear. But before we, I, I look at that, we, I need to say something about fear. I mean, fear at the end of the day is what drives almost every person in this room. You're afraid of losing control. You're afraid that your kids might not turn out right. You're afraid you might have enough money. You're afraid that your husband doesn't really love you. You're afraid that your wife doesn't love you. You're afraid that things at work might go wrong. You're afraid, you're afraid, you're afraid, you're afraid. And at the end of the day... The root cause of fear is ultimately a fear of death. Whether it's a fear of, 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 of losing something, and it's sort of the death of your dream, or the death of what you thought you wanted to have, or the death of your control, or ultimately death itself. And so the only remedy ultimately to fear is someone who could actually conquer death. And so John falls down as if dead himself, and he is completely and utterly afraid. Jesus touches him and says, stop being afraid. Why? I'm the first and the last. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. One verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And Jesus says to John, stop being afraid. I am the first and the last. Which, by the way, is another way of saying Alpha and Omega. 
And what is meant by Alpha and Omega is that God is the first and the last. He's the beginning, the middle, and the end. That everything, remember we looked at Colossians chapter 1, everything was created through him and by him and for him that he's at the root of creation and he will be at the culmination of all that he is doing. And he's telling John now, John, I am in control of all things. Are you afraid? Try this on for size. I'm in control of everything. And we know that the promise of God is that all things work for the good who are called according to his purpose. So he says to John, I'm the first and the last. But then he does something else. He says, I died, and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So what is the remedy to John's fear? Remember what I told you in the introduction the first time, the introduction the second time? It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He said, I lived, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. The only thing that could harm you the only thing that you could justifiably be afraid of is death. Check this out, John. Not only am I the first and the last, that's big, but I am the living one. I died, you saw that. But behold, now I'm alive forevermore. I have conquered the only thing for which you need to be afraid, and if you don't believe me, check this out. I even got the keys. I hold the keys to death in Hades. No one else can send you to your grave without me okaying it. No one else can touch you without first coming through me. I have the key to all this. And the question is, do you really believe that, church? Do you believe that about your own fears? About your own desire to control, your own desire for everything? Do you really believe that God, Jesus, is the first and the last, that it is his life and his death and his resurrection on your behalf that somehow is able to get rid of those fears? Because what Jesus is saying right now is it should. And not only that, that he is the one that holds the keys to death and Hades. It keeps going. I mean, John's commission is expanded. And I want to show you how it applies to what we just said. He says, because of this, because I've overcome death, because I am the living one, because I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades, he says, write, therefore continue writing. And he tells him three things. He says, write the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now in scholarly circles, people write, spend a lot of time writing about verse 19 of chapter 1 trying to say well, that, that it, it, it is the interpretive key of Revelation, that what he's saying is this is a, as a chronology, for example. That what he's telling John is to write, how, how the chronology of Revelation is going to be is something, you're going to write what happened in the past, write what's going to happen, happen now, and then write what happens in the future. It, it, after all week, what I have figured out is if the book of Revelation, this verse is definitely anything, it's not about the chronology. I think it's about something else altogether. Because he's recommissioning John. He's saying, get up and basically write what I was going to tell you to write. And I want you to write that which was in the past, that which is in the present, and that which was in the future. And do you remember what we said over and over again? You're going to see in the book of Revelation is in the past and in the present and the future. In other words, another way to, for him to say this might be, John, write therefore that I've won. Write therefore that I am winning. 
and write, therefore, that I will win. Write the things that have happened, my death, life, and resurrection, my victory over sin and death. Write the things that are happening right now, my victory over sin and death, and write the things that will happen in the future, my victory over sin and death and all of creation. What do we see next? And finally, in verse 20, he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars, and I'm skipping in the seven golden lampstands, he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the churches. Now, I could spend a lot of time talking about who, the, who are the angels of the churches, and at the end of the day, no one is sure exactly what he means there. Because an angel can either be a human messenger, or it could be an angel. It could be, it could be you know, the, the, the winged creatures. I mean, it could be someone. And the book of Revelation, every other place the word angel is used, it means the heavenly creatures. So to be consistent, it would be heavenly creatures. And the question is, why would he say the, the, the churches have an angel? Well, some would say, just like the other places in the New Testament seem to, to imply that, that there is at least one angel assigned to, to each church, and they, they bear some responsibility for what goes on in the church. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is to try and remind the churches that they exist on a different realm, that we exist down here oftentimes in sort of the petty and who did this and who did that and who said this to me and who didn't say that to me. And I think what John is trying to do, or Jesus through John, is remind them that you exist up here. The church is in a different place than the rest of the world. That you exist on the same realm with the angels. But what's more important is that he interprets, he says, the seven lampstands are the churches. Why is that such an important thing to get? Well, it's important in a lot of ways because it's a connection between Israel of the Old Testament and Israel of the New Testament. But for our purposes this morning, I wanted to remind you what was said in verse 13. Do you remember where this one like the Son of Man was? John turns around and he sees seven golden lampstands. And now we know, it's been revealed to us, now we know that the lampstands are the churches. Now, was this one like a son of man sitting way above the, the lampstands? Was he sitting far away from the lampstands? Was he sitting up at the cheap seats at Safeco Field looking down at the lampstands? The one who is like the son of man was walking in the midst of the lampstands. In other words, he's not an absentee landlord. When we get to the churches, the seven churches, and look at, we, we talk about each of those, each one of the seven churches, the letters to them, begin something like this. I know. I know what you have done. I know what's good. I know what's bad. And this is the reason Jesus knows what is happening in each of the seven churches. He knows because he's involved. He knows because he walks in the midst of them. I think one of the things people in church tend to forget is that very fact, that most of us go through life and we assume that Jesus is just somewhere way out there. I trust that he's forgiven me for my sins. I trust that, that I believe the right theology. But at the end of the day, he's way out there and I'm down here in the muck. At the end of the day, he's seated by the, at the right hand of God the Father in glory and I am down here going through my day-to-day -day business wondering if I can even pay my bills. 
And what John is saying here, what the book of Revelation is saying here, is he, he is not an absentee landlord. The reason he knows what's going on in the seven churches is because he is there. And get this, this is also the reason that Jesus knows what's happening in our church. He knows. And that should change everything. If you thought Jesus is walking in the midst of us. I mean, think about it. You know, oftentimes, you know, in popular culture, you hear WWJD, what would Jesus do? And you know, what would Jesus do? That's actually pretty easy because he's not there. And I know why I think Jesus would, would do this or I think Jesus would do that. What I think this is getting us to is something like WWWT. What if Jesus is there? What if Jesus was there? What if Jesus, when, you're, when you're, you're out in the narthex or you're at home with your friends and you're tempted to gossip, and what if Jesus was there? Would you still do it? Or when you're tempted to complain, what if Jesus was there? Would you still do it? When you're tempted to do any number of things, would you still do it if Jesus was there? Because you see, as we move into the book of Revelation... On one hand, we see that God is sovereign and we see that Jesus is sovereign. On the other hand, we see that we bear responsibility and the churches bear responsibility. And if they do the right thing, they're blessed. And if they don't do the, the right thing, then they will be disciplined. And the question is, is how does the fact that Jesus walks in our midst change the way we behave? How does it change the way you interact with your neighbor? How does it change the way you do anything? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that as we continue with this series, that you would, uh, on one hand, uh, convict us and, and draw us closer to you. On the other hand, I pray that we would be encouraged and, and engaged and we would look and see the fact that Jesus is the first and the last and that he lived and that he died and he rose again for us. And because of that, he not only represents us, but he promised to be with us and he is with us. And I pray that you would just, in fact, open our eyes to see that. In his name we pray. Amen. And amen. At this point in the service, if you're able to stand, I'd ask you to stand and we 